0: I'm Susan Moran.
1: And I'm Joel Parker. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 24th.
0: Coming up, we'll talk with the executive director and a recent high school graduate from Teens for Oceans. It's a Colorado-based nonprofit that's inspiring and training the next generation of ocean stewards and scientists.
2: It was such a rewarding feeling being able to swim in the Caribbean with sea turtles. It truly emphasized my love for the ocean and marine biology.
1: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: In the battle of instant versus self-control for a delayed but bigger gratification, who wins in your mind? A new study suggests that when we reframe how we think about the consequences of immediate gratification, we can increase self-control without exerting extra willpower. Researchers evaluated behavioral and neurological responses to cognitive reframing of a choice between small but immediate monetary rewards and delayed monetary rewards, which were larger than the immediate rewards. The authors asked about 180 participants to choose between pairs of immediate and delayed rewards. The rewards were presented in two ways. The first was a traditional so-called hidden zero format in which the researchers asked something like this. Would you prefer to receive $5 today or 8 in 45 days? Then, the delayed rewards were presented in a so-called explicit zero format, like this. Would you prefer to receive $5 today and zero in 45 days, or zero today and $8 in 45 days? The authors found that the second format made immediate rewards less appealing and led participants to choose delayed rewards more often than immediate rewards. The results suggest that reframing a choice in terms of present and future consequences promotes self-control, without requiring greater willpower, according to the authors. The study and a similar follow-up study were conducted by psychologists Aaron Megan at the University of Colorado, sorry, University of Pennsylvania, and Carol Dweck of Stanford and other colleagues. It was published in this week's online edition of The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
1: Almost exactly two years ago, scientists at the Large Hadron Collider announced the discovery of a particle that was consistent with predictions of the Higgs boson, the particle that's predicted to give mass to all other particles in the universe. Now researchers have succeeded in finding evidence for the direct decay of the Higgs boson into particular kinds of particles called fermions, and that discovery lends further support to the standard model of particle physics. All fundamental particles in nature can be divided into one of two categories, fermions or bosons. Fermions are the particles that make up most of what we think of as normal physical matter, protons, neutrons, electrons, which are the building blocks of atoms and molecules. Bosons are particles that govern certain forces like electricity and magnetism. Photons, particles of light, are bosons and the Higgs particle itself is also a boson. Previously, the Higgs particle could only be detected through its decay into other kinds of bosons, but the recent results show that the Higgs particle also decays into fermions, which is a result that is predicted by some models of particle physics, but not others. This discovery allows scientists to exclude and narrow down certain theories regarding the Higgs particle and the standard model of particle physics. The measurement is also significant because it allows the researchers to better refine the mass of the Higgs particle. The results were published in the journal Nature Physics.
3: Rhythm and oscillation is everywhere. Sound, light, electricity, Now even the biology of the human body is being understood as a system of cooperating oscillators. Many of these oscillating systems are used in familiar medical diagnostics, such as EKGs for heart rate monitoring and EEGs for brainwave observation. And while these macro systems are now easily measurable, the challenge has been in understanding what it means and how the cells within the system are playing their part. In 1975, a mathematical theory emerged to describe oscillating cells, such as neurons. It relied on observing the functionality of an individual cell or oscillator to make assumptions about its larger system. For example, patterns of neurons firing should describe the nature of brain waves and thus also states of consciousness, or rhythms of actuating cardiac cells telling the story of heart rate. This methodology prevailed for many years and proved highly effective when there were distinctly observable rhythms, or harmonic, states between cells. However, as the cells or oscillators start behaving more chaotically, the model starts to break down. Scientists have classified these seemingly disordered states as glassy, referring to the random nature of molecules in a physical glass material, like the ones your windows are made out of. In contrast to a well-ordered system, such as a crystal, The configuration of a glassy material or state has no observable long-range pattern. In response, researchers at the University of Lancaster in England have developed a new mathematical model which allows for these glassy states to be represented. Through further investigation, it's become apparent that even within these chaotic states, the cells still remain coupled or dependent on one another, a phenomenon that has been called synchronous disorder. These discoveries could have profound impacts on how we study thoughts, brain states, mental disease, and could even cross into research about lasers, electronics, and even economics. While scientists are excited about these prospects, they readily admit that a Pandora's box full of new mysteries has just opened up. For How on Earth, this is Kendra Kruger.
1: Water, water everywhere, especially on comets, and in particular, the Rosetta spacecraft has made its first detection of water evaporating from the comet and is planning to rendezvous with in August. The Rosetta mission, a project that I work on, is designed to fly along with the comet for more than a year and also to place a lander on the comet's surface to do on-site studies. The Miro instrument that measures water lines at microwave wavelengths has made the first detection back in June 6th of water, but didn't announce the measurement until a few days ago when the measurement was confirmed and analyzed. Detecting water is not a surprise because, after all, we know comets contain water ice. But this is the first detection made by Rosetta of water from the comet, which is named Churyumov-Graciomenka, So now mission scientists can start measuring and predicting how active the comet will be, and that information will be used to plan how close Rosetta can get to the comet and what kind of orbits it can fly. Also, to put this in perspective, this detection of water was made at a distance roughly equivalent to the distance from the Earth to the Moon, and the amount of water detected is equivalent to somewhere between half a cup to about four cups of water per second. So imagine standing in your backyard and measuring the evaporation of a cup of water on the moon. And that will give you an idea of how sensitive are these instruments on the Rosetta spacecraft. The detection was announced on June 20th by way of the International Astronomical Union's Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams.
0: In local events, if you're looking for some science activities for kids and teens this summer... The University of Colorado's Science Discovery program is hosting a number of science classes throughout the summer. Among the many classes is this one, a week-long field course that lets high school students design and conduct their own field research projects while living at CU's Mountain Research Station on Niwot Ridge. Pretty cool. To see what's offered, check out their website, sciencediscovery.colorado.edu. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. If there ever was a time to inspire kids to care, learn, and do something about the environment, the time is now. Among the many problems we face are climate change and overfishing. Both are threatening the oceans, whether it's coral reefs, sharks, dolphins, or sea turtles. Today, we're kicking off a series of interviews on the show called The Ocean is Us. It'll explore how all living... All of us living in landlocked Colorado are connected to the oceans. Consider how our watershed flows east into the Mississippi and then onto the Gulf of Mexico, or the fish we buy at the grocery store, or the carbon dioxide we emit that acidifies the ocean and destroys shell bearing corals and other critters. Teens for Oceans is a nonprofit organization based here in Colorado that's inspiring teenagers nationwide, in fact, to become passionate ocean lovers and scientists through experiential learning. In fact, the kids join marine biologists in doing actual field research. How cool is that? Mickey McComb-Kobza is a marine biologist and executive director of Teens for Oceans. She's in the studio with Shelby Austin, who recently graduated from Ralston Valley High School in Arvada. Mickey and Shelby, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great Thank to you. be here. So, Mickey, as executive director, maybe start with you. Um, what What is this nonprofit, and how did it get started? So Teens for Oceans is a
4: nonprofit organization that is based out of Boulder, Colorado, and we started about six years ago and We started uh, because of a science teacher who was very passionate about the oceans and The science teacher uh, took his students on field expeditions, and as soon as the students got back to Colorado. Uh, they were they were very sad because they didn't have the ocean with them. And so through his students, he devised a new technology to deploy underwater webcams to bring the ocean back to the students and to allow them to stay connected to the ocean through technology. And over the years, this group grew from one school at Kent Denver School um, into becoming a nonprofit organization that then brought in many, many other uh, schools. Uh, actually, now we're... Uh, located in uh, many different states, and we have started our very first international chapter. So we've grown uh, from that very first um, science teacher's passion into an international organization that involves um, several hundred students across the nation.
0: Wow, interesting, and we'll get into uh, some of the impacts and all. Shelby, you just mentioned in your little teaser that you just got back from somewhere that sounded pretty darn Cool. Where was that?
2: I did. We just actually got back from Virgin Gorda of the British Virgin Islands a couple weeks ago, and it was amazing. It was absolutely perfect. What were some of the things that you did in terms of the actual science? Um, Particularly tagging sea turtles um, was one of them, and it brought a whole new perspective to me and allows me to respect them on such a greater level because they're fast and they're strong and they're very hard to keep up with when you're trying to swim after them on the surface. And you were swimming after them to do what? Um, well, once we did spot a sea turtle, one of us would raise our hands and we would dive down or follow them until we could get above them. And two people would go on either side and try to free dive about 20 or 25 feet down to catch them so we could bring them on the boat and measure them and if they did not have a tag on them already, we would put tags in their fins and a pit tag in their neck so we could look at their growth over three or four years' time after we caught them again. And Explain what a pit tag is. Um, a pit tag is similar to the tag that you would put in your pet that you could scan if they were to get lost that um, brings up a number that can be entered into a database and you can find where they've been, what they're doing, what, how much they've grown. And you're doing it, well, in this case, with these kind of sea
0: turtles because they're super threatened?
2: Um, well, all sea turtles are threatened in their own respective ways. But um, looking particularly at Acamal, Mexico, where a previous Teens for Ocean um, went to, they were looking at... And this is along
0: the Yucatan Peninsula, where it's super popular to go snorkeling and all, right?
2: Yes, exactly. And they were looking mostly at how... The snorkeling industry to go out and look at all these sea turtles was affecting their habitat and affecting when they would come in at certain times per day, which ultimately is driving them away from their habitats where they feed on seagrass and other things like that. And with all the snorkelers coming in and essentially polluting the water, it is driving them away from their habitats that they've been for for years, let alone decades.
0: Too much loving of the ocean. So you guys exactly. are sort of monitoring the impact of that and how it affects the behavior of the sea turtles or the populations um, themselves?
2: Yeah, in a way, because we were actually looking at a presentation to show how their migration patterns would vary from sub-adult to adult, juveniles, etc. And we were mainly looking at how the snorkeling industry was affecting their typical migration patterns and where they would nest on certain beaches and where fishing would happen and overfishing and basically just causing them to deplete rather than expand.
0: Well, wow. and so um Mickey, you've been doing this as a marine biologist for quite a while. How does this fit into sort of the broader context both in Mexico and in and- More broadly?
4: Well, I think um, uh, being a marine biologist and and studying the oceans for for quite some time, um, I think the general theme that we're seeing is that conservation is really a priority. And conservation has many facets to it, and one of those facets is education and awareness. And I think that what we recognized uh, in Acoma, Mexico, was an opportunity to take students um, to engage them in the science. And to allow them to understand some of the, the hard issues that are out there facing um, not only wildlife but people mm-hmm. and the reality mm-hmm. of that, uh, that landscape and that interaction. And so our students got very uh, involved in addressing the question of how many snorkel tourists are too many in a particular region that is uh, host to seagrass, uh, which is uh, the primary uh, forage for juvenile green sea turtles. And uh, what our students found through deploying some very novel technologies, um, they found that the sea turtles were moving out during peak snorkeling times. Mm-hmm. So the one thing that the snorkelers were going into sea see were bre- being driven away just because of the sheer numbers of snorkelers. And so our students' efforts and their data that they're collecting and analyzing is being used to allow uh, for management uh, decisions to be uh, looked at and, and for us to try to um, give them counsel on what a, a good number is uh, for snorkelers to, to be going into the bay and, and how much is too much. And uh, so students have been very excited about this project because it does allow them to see the real world
0: impact of conservation. Interesting. So you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. We're talking with Mickey McComb-Kobza and Shelly Austin from Teens for Oceans. Shelley, I keep having this image in my mind of you guys chasing the turtles and then trying to tag them. So is this a pretty common way to tag as opposed to darting them from a distance? I mean, it sounds fun and adventurous.
2: Um, Yes, we, (laughs) (laughs) um, even though the water is extremely clear down there, I can't even imagine trying to dart them from a distance (laughs) just because they're extremely elusive. Um, But there are different methods of which we could have used um the one that we used most frequently was being towed behind the boat in which they would have ropes coming off the boat and you would hold on to it so you could get cover more distance in a shorter amount of time rather than tiring yourself out and then having to exert more energy trying to get down to the bottom of the ocean to like water to skiing these. is your tagging <laughs> exactly <laughs> um another method that could have been used but wasn't unfortunately used was rodeo style which I was extremely excited about but I didn't get the opportunity to use which is you f- see the turtle and basically jump off the boat head first and try to catch it. Um, I was called death from above because of that and I didn't actually get the chance to jump on a turtle but maybe one day.
0: <laughs> which kind of begs the question how does this impact the turtles?
2: Um, The way that they are caught doesn't cause any harm to them because we either hold them very close to their joints so it doesn't put any stress on the animal themselves. And once they are on the boat, their eyes are covered to minimize their stress levels even more so they're not completely freaked out with eight or nine humans around them. Like, what is going on? I don't know what's happening. Tell us about your
0: day. Pretty much. (laughs) And, And how long does it take about to do the whole tagging process and put them back in the ocean?
2: Um, I would say it probably takes about 15 minutes, roughly, depending on how feisty the turtle is, because once their flippers kind of get going, if you don't have a good firm grasp on their joints, so to minimize their movement, it could get, well, just bad really fast.
0: <laughs> so even before this trip... We'll- did you want to be a marine biologist or what
2: what are your hopes and how has this inspired you um i have always wanted to be a marine biologist it just fascinates me because the ocean is kind of the last great frontier and it's being depleted a lot faster than we can be explored because 95 percent of it is unexplored and we find new species every year and sometimes those species go extinct before we can actually discover what they are so I would like to be part of help conserving this amazing natural resource that we have rather than destroying it. It's mm, really inspiring. And, and Mickey, you already
0: are a marine biologist. Give, give me a sense of, so this is one of the projects and, and one of the schools doing this work. Is this the kind of thing that Teens for Ocean is doing and in conjunction with a bunch of scientists who are out there doing the research already?
4: Yes, it is. Um, uh, as I mentioned before, we are um, working on a sea turtle project, but my specialty um, is in shark conservation and uh, shark physiology. So many of the students are involved with me on some projects, trying to understand a little bit more about sharks, their movements, and ultimately their conservation. As I think many uh, many of the listeners know, um, sharks are in Uh, dire straits right now um, all over the all over the globe their their numbers are in decline and so we work with uh, a whole network of scientists to try to allow opportunities for our students to be engaged involved and to make a difference and one of the ways that we do that is we educate our students about uh, contemporary ocean issues that are relevant today. And more importantly, we educate them, but we provide them with the opportunity to take action immediately. So for instance, plastic pollutions, uh, we work with uh, Five Gyres, and we allow students to Five Gyres is a
0: nonprofit that works on cleaning up or raising awareness about it?
4: Yes, both. And uh, and so our students are able to then have uh, a defined role and an action uh, plan on what they can do to actually help and, and to solve the problem. Because I think oftentimes when we hear about things that are sort of larger than ourselves, it's easy to sort of shut down. But if we can take steps to, to really fight the fight and to, and to feel like we're doing something about it, um, we find that our students are, are very excited about that, and, it, and it's empowering for them. And not only that, but it allows them to take that knowledge and those steps of action to other students to inspire them. And that's really what we're about, is trying to create almost an army of ocean advocates and stewards
0: to try to help uh, create healthier oceans and awareness. That's a pretty healthy army. <laughs> so maybe Shelby will just end with, um, where can people go to learn more about it? I know you've had some really cool recent campaigns with Fabien Cousteau and all, but where where can people go?
2: Well, I learned about Teens Through Oceans through actually my school, Ralston Valley, and new chapters are being opened consistently where our newest chapter is actually an international chapter down in the British Virgin Islands. So honestly, it can be reached anywhere at this point. And the website itself? Uh, teensforoceans.org. And that's
0: four as in number four, Teensforoceans.org. Thank you so much. That was Mickey mccomb Comza and Shelby Austin of Teens for Oceans. You can learn more by going, as she said, to teensforoceans.org. Stay tuned for more interviews in the series called The Ocean is Us. Also, don't forget, you can check out KGNU's year-long series on Colorado water issues. It's called Connecting the Drops. It's at kgnu.org and yourwatercolorado.org. that's all for this edition of how on earth our executive producer is joel parker this week's show was produced by kendrick Kruger and was engineered by joel parker
1: our theme music was written and produced by josh cutler additional music by the ocean blue
0: visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes extended interviews you can also subscribe to our podcast through itunes and follow us on facebook and twitter